Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. I'm Steve Azar, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, meaning I'm asking the questions this time, and oh, have mercy for the airwaves. I spent 20 years in Music City, wrote and made some hits, traveled the world, and then moved my family back to the birthplace of American music and where the magnolia trees prosper. And now every time I put my feet on Mississippi soil, when I'm off the road, well, I'm at peace. On this show, it's all about hearing the story straight from the mouths of the friends I've made along the way, their journey to success. Heck, there might be someone on, I don't even know, but you know how us Mississippi types are. We tend to take well to new company. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them. I'm Steve Azar. It's just like that muddy river moving slow. Ain't no worries, it's how life goes. In a Mississippi Minute. That's right. Today on In a Mississippi Minute, well, I'm pumped. Spent many golf events with this talented man. And when it comes to TV, this this star has shined so bright and has done it all. But there's another side to him he thrives on, the thrill of theater. As proven in his latest Broadway starring role in the musical hit Chicago. And his voice, well... You'll know it when you hear it. Please welcome actor, singer, author, comedian, and all-around good guy, John O'Hurley. Hey, John, what's up? Steve, how are you? Thank you. I hope I live up to half of that introduction. Oh, yeah. No, no, you'll surpass it. You'll surpass it. Uh, (laughs) So you're in New York right now? I am. I'm just uh, wrapping up uh, a three-month tour here uh, on Broadway. Uh, It's been, you know, wonderful. I've Somewhere during this three-month run, I will have done my 2,000th performance in this role of Billy Flynn in the musical Chicago, which is now the longest-running uh, American musical in uh, Broadway theater history. My goodness. 22 years. 2,000. 2,000. 2,000. And I'm going to continue to do it until I get it right. <laughs> I love that. I had not gotten it right on stage yet, and I love the fact that it's always uh, <laughs> ever-enduring. Hey, so let's talk about that. I mean, okay— the theater and i know you love it and i and and obviously it's so for as a musician and being on stage the thrill of that moment uh it's always like the first time when did the theater bug bite you and did you start out your career like this uh i was um a member of the royal garden in the uh, popular british uh, uh nursery rhyme sing a song of sixpence was i when i was in first grade wow first grade so many people will remember that it's, uh, <laughs> well you remember it you know you do i sure do no you know ever since i was three years old steve i knew what i wanted to do people would say what do you want to be when you grow up and i would put my hands on my hips and with the disgust that only a three-year-old can muster i would point to the black and white television in the corner of the room and i would say well i am an actor so that's what i'm going to be <laughs> and i knew back then that it's not that i wanted to be an actor i knew that i was one I just connected somehow on television with the people, the kids that were there on Romper Room and Mickey Mouse Club and all the other yeah. things that you watched back then on the black and white. But it was a connection that I had, and I never lost it. So for me, all I did in my life was just kind of connect the dots together and know that I was on the right path. 
Okay, so I got I got to dig into your folks if you don't mind. So, so was there sure. was there a, a mentor as a mom or dad? Were they involved in in theater or TV or anything? No, not in the slightest. And while it was very cute to have a child that was always doing plays in the basement, uh, the older I got and the more serious I got about you making this a career, the less and less supportive they were. <laughs> and I suppose it is a a parent's obligation to do that because it's the most uncertain profession in the world and and uh, the statistics attest to that i've been very fortunate okay so i'm trying to figure so what did your dad do uh dad was a uh, doctor ear nose and throat and well, well, uh 90 years old to this day and uh oh, wow. still, a, still a, a great man and a well-loved uh well-loved surgeon and and so where did you grow up uh growing up well that's a big assumption on your part that i ever even grew well, up no, i apologize i have to um, rephrase that you're right i'd hate for you to grow <laughs> up <laughs> no, that's right. I, I'm a New England boy. I, I was born in Maine. I grew up most of my life in Connecticut. I went to Providence College, uh, lived in Boston for a while, and continue to stay, have my uh, my summer home in Vermont. So my footprints are all around New England. Did, did you know, because I had, uh, back in 2005, I, I mean, I, I didn't know how to use my voice, use my gut, use things. And, and, and there was an ear, nose, and throat doctor named Dr. Mitchell that saved my voice. I mean, I had a huge cyst on the left side. And when I would sneeze, John, it would just, it rupture. So I had no use of it yeah. on stage. So yeah. growing up, was he, was that a, was that an asset to be able to know how to protect you know, your it, voice? It, not really, because I, uh, honestly, Steve, I didn't start studying voice uh, seriously uh, until I was in college. And I and I went right for opera. Uh, so I was studying voice at, at the kind of the highest level, and that's where I learned to use my voice not only as, as a speaking tool but as a singing tool as well. Because the difference—I mean, there is no difference in, in my way of thinking. It's a, uh, a, a, a thinking that uh, singing is just really an extension of tone, uh, of and speaking is is without extending the tone. Um, and and so for me, it was all the same. So once I learned to use the instrument, I knew that I could do anything I wanted with it. But you're right. It's uh, Most uh, people that are pop singers today are going to blow their voices out because they're, they're used to singing with a microphone. And I didn't have a microphone. I didn't have mm. the benefit of one. And I didn't, in fact, I prefer not to have one, actually. Right. I, I'm much more comfortable just with my voice and filling the back of a theater. Um, it's, uh, I have a big voice and probably one of the bigger voices on Broadway, but I like that, and I like to be able to command. A, I like to be able to command a stage just with my speaking voice. We're with John O'Hurley. Uh, he is in the middle of uh, well. He says, the, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how long he's going to go in Chicago. 2,000 performances. He's going to cross that path. John, that's a lot of days. That's that's a lot of work to get prepared it's, for theater. How, mm-hmm. what's, what's your discipline while while in theater mode and game time? I get to the theater a touch early, not a lot. I have kind of a rodeo voice that it, you know, I've kept it in, you know, I've kept it in good shape. I, uh, and I know how to use it. So it never really gets out of, uh, balance, uh, all that much. I do warm up before I go and I have my, you know, my warm up exercises. I certainly, and I do a lot of stretching in the, uh, um, my dressing room and, uh, you know, a good cowl workout as well before the show. So the, you know, the body's engaged. And I get ready. And then I tell you, you know, before I walk on stage every single night, this is how I get myself in gear mentally. I bow my head right before I walk on stage and I say one quick prayer, and that is, God, let me be surprised. Wow. That's all I say. And believe it or not, it centers me and it it makes me look people in the eye because I won't find my surprise that night unless I am uh, absolutely interacting 
directly with each and in every individual. If I'm, I can't phone it in then. I've right. got to look and I've got to find my surprise every night. And I'm going to tell you, 2,000 performances, <sighs> I found one every single night. So to say that the role is 2,000 times richer than when I began it uh, in 2006 is an honest-to-God statement. That's amazing. You know, I have uh, my ritual after throat surgery. I realized uh, it was like I would just not shut up. So it was 90 minutes on. And then even if I was 90 minutes on, they said, look, you got to take 10 to 15 off. You just got to take it off. But I had my when I learned from my speech therapist how to loosen my voice up. I mean, the band started banging on the door going, you got to stop that because it was, you know, you make a lot of weird sounds, you know, the O's and the E's. Well, you do, but you know what, but, but you know, when a, when your brass section starts to warm up too, you don't complain about the noises. No fooling. No, uh, somehow when the human when the human voice starts, you know, playing around a little bit, uh, it uh, you know people get oh stop doing that stop doing that I, you know what I say this is my private time I'm sorry if it offends your ear, but uh, just you know talk to the drummer when he's starting to work out his skins before oh, yeah. the show. Yeah, the drummers everything's so loud. Isn't that interesting? You know when you put a, a band together, it's amazing when it's right, but then when when the band's good, but when you when everything's on its own, you're like oh man. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's not pretty. It's no. not pretty. I played the I played the violin for one year in fourth grade. I can attest to that. <laughs> now, do you play any it musical? Like, it sounds like you're beat. It sounds like you're beating a cat. Yeah. Oh well, I know. Well, it's going to sound a lot better than mine. You're at least you're you have a cat. I don't know what mine would be like a mule or a goat. Mine would be a goat. I think if I played. <laughs> hey, John. John, when when did your voice develop as far as what? what you know. There, you know, I live down about an hour and a half from Morgan Freeman, and we've spent time on the golf course, and and he's he's a friend, and and I just wonder when his voice just all of a sudden appeared. When did your voice turn into this magnificent uh, instrument well, that it, it is? It's been a, it's been a it's been a slow process, and I'll tell you why. Steve, my voice was the last one to change in high school. I was the kid that was 15 years old, and I still had a little voice like that. I can't believe it. And it wasn't, a, it wasn't until one day when all of a sudden the hormones just lined up and all of a sudden it dropped. But I didn't. Um, I grew up in the late 60s at that time. That was, those were my teenage years uh, and into the early 70s as well. But those were the years of the great radio DJs. Yeah. And so it was an enormously influential time in my life because the DJs were music. It's not the groups. It wasn't the radio stations. It was the DJs. They owned everything. It was their influence that decided whether your record got played or not on uh, the radio. So they owned the music business. And there were these incredible names, you know, like Dick Robinson, Sandy Beach, and, you know, mm-hmm. names like that. But they all had these voices, and everyone went up and down like this, and you could have every <laughs> album ever recorded, you know, that type of thing. So the musicality of the speaking voice was something that I immediately uh, attached myself to, because I thought it was, wow, listen to those voices. And, you know, they were genuine. They, they actually had genuine voices. And, uh, you know, and I think now it's just not so much in the radio industry. Uh, they don't either require it or be people don't know what they're doing with their voices. So it's, a, you know, it is an instrument. So that's when I grew up and that's when I started to realize that I had the potential of, of doing something with my voice. Right. We're talking to John O'Hurley. This has already been extremely insightful. You're in a Mississippi Minute. Stand by. We'll be right back.
In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm Steve Azar. We are with the fabulous, incredibly talented John O'Hurley. Uh, we're gonna. He's he's obviously in New York working on the Broadway thing, finishing up, uh, closing in on 2,000 shows as we discussed. Uh, and you're in the Mississippi Minute, John. Uh, let's talk golf. I gotta I gotta talk about your game. Uh, when did the love of golf? Because you and I both know we never know each other. We never meet each other if it wasn't for our careers. But it's the culmination of a moment of a weekend of charity events of golf events that we've met and that mm-hmm. we all have gotten to meet and all become friends uh you you love golf i see you strolling down the fairway and you just seem like you're yep. really happy on the golf course and i don't really like it because, well it is it's, come yeah. on i mean you're always happy <laughs> i I, uh, <laughs> I always was you know golf was my sport growing up it was a way to spend four hours with my dad on a sunday afternoon mm-hmm. Uh, and then when I was, you know, I, I'd always go to the driving range with him, and uh, and that's how, you know, that was our, that was the common denominator. It was always the golf course. Um, and as I grew, and even at the age of eleven, started to take lessons and stuff, it was a sport that came fairly easily to me. Other sports didn't. I did. I, I don't think I have the anywhere near the athletic prowess of you know other people that have made their careers over it. But uh, you know, the NBA was never in question for me. Nor yeah, was me football. neither. <laughs> so it was. Uh, it was. You know, golf is always the sport that I kept, but it was a you know it was a a competitive sport for me, and the only one that I played. I played in high school. Um, I was on a theater scholarship, so I tried to play golf in college, but that just didn't work because they were two con- two conflicting mistresses, if you know what I mean. Right, and, uh, right, right. So I, uh, you know, c- golf just became a recreational sport for me, but I still love the game and I love what it does, and I love the people that it brings together. It brings you know, you it brought you and I together, and it it brought me and Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan and everybody else I've met in other fields and uh, that I would our paths would never cross were it not for the game of golf, and I'm very grateful for that. And so when did you start playing? How, how old were you? Can you recollect? Well, I, I would say, you know, I was a driving range kid uh, until about 11 when I finally took lessons at, at the country club that we belonged to in, right. in uh, West Hartford, Connecticut. So that was when I started playing. And I, I, you know, I was okay. But I mean, and and I, but I took it more seriously than my talent demanded. You know, I was, yeah. I want, I thought I was fabulous when I was younger. Yeah. And I was, uh, <laughs> you know, that was my game. You know, uh, you know, and I go out in nine holes and shoot a 45 and think that okay, I walk on water here. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, but it was, uh, and, and you know, our we had a little high school team, and I played on that, and I was lucky if I shot a 42. That was a great round. Yeah, you played nine holes back then in high school, right? It was a nine. They, I mean, you know, they still and they still do. Yes, yeah. because usually it's an after-school sport in high school. So right. That's what uh, when Tiger when Tiger was uh, playing in high school, he was still playing nine holes. You know, eighteen holes may may have been a practice round, and it wasn't until the big big tournaments that they played eighteen. But the high school matches were were nine holes. Sure. Yeah, I love it. I love. It. You ever have you ever played with Tiger? You've been paired with him. I did. You know, I, I back when he was uh, a young kid. Oddly enough. Uh, my uh, my ex-wife's uh, I have to get on the lineage here. My ex-wife's uncle uncle was his co- uh, high school coach. Come on! And so on on yeah on or around the time he was down there in uh, Huntington Beach there in uh, in Southern California. So um, you know he always said to me he says you know you think you hit a long ball you got to come down and see this kid number one Tiger Woods 
And I went, oh, I remember. So anyway, you know, the name obviously filtered through the family for, for quite a few years uh, during his high school years. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I went down and uh, I, I played with him. And he had his thick Coke bottle glasses. He looked a little bit like a skinny Arthur Ashe back then. Yeah. Um, but, he, you know, he was, uh, you know, he could twist around and do a 720-degree turn and hit the ball 330 yards without even a blink of the eye. And mm-hmm. he was a rail fin but he had just so much confidence over the ball. And he played golf at a different level. I'll give you an example. Here's a statistic that nobody ever is, I don't think anybody knows except for me. Um, when they added up, we're just talking about playing nine holes. The second best player down in the Orange County area, when Tiger was playing high school golf, was a, had a total uh, score for the year of two over par. Now that's through all of the nine hole tournaments that they played. Right. That was the second best player in the county. Tiger was 54 under par. Oh, my gosh. And number two was two over par. Now, it's just, I mean, he was at a level back then. I mean, that's before he got into into college and and his early years on the professional tour. You know, I mean, that was, you could just see how he had separated himself from everything around him and that he was, uh, you know, a superstar waiting. There aren't too many sports where you can separate yourself so right. far from your you know, your surrounding field. <laughs> We're talking to John O'Hurley. You're in a Mississippi Minute, and I'm having a blast right now. Well, so let's talk about his comeback. I know this isn't about Tiger, but but you got to understand, I was nervous for him, man. The last five holes, I was standing up. I was grabbing golf clubs. I was trying to you know swing him through, you know, get him through <laughs> the end. And, and winning after the – you're talking about his back, how it used to turn and the damage and yep. the surgeries, and he's glued together. He's nailed together, yep. right? Screwed together. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a golfer and just as – and emotionally what he went through, is it not, is it not one of the most amazing uh, comebacks in sports, don't you think? You know, it really is. And, and I'll, let me put it in perspective. The I play in that uh, for the last 25, six years. I've been playing in the, the NBC Celebrity Golf Championships up there in Tahoe, the American Century. Right. And, you know, that's, that's a whole week of golf. But that is just, you know, in the framework of a professional uh, tournament, that's the same amount of time that they play. I got to tell you, when it comes to Saturday afternoon, my body is so twisted mm-hmm. and turned and can, I mean, you, I'm, I'm like a Windsor knot at that point. And yet these guys still go out and every shot is perfect. People don't realize the athleticism that it takes to play golf at that level. Now, some of them now have the bodies of, you know, little gods like Tiger and Rory and uh, mm-hmm. Stenson and all these, you know, great golfers. Some of them don't, like Patrick Reed, you know, they're little bubble boys. Right. But, it's notwithstanding, it takes an enormous athlete inside to be able to do what they do, to walk five miles, to not get tired, and to keep it going, and not get, and not allow your mind to get tired. It's you know, it's a sport like no other because nothing's moving. You have to. It's a pro. It's a totally proactive sport. Nothing reactive about it. No, you're one hundred percent correct. And in fact, to uh, clarify what you're saying, when we play the BMW. I mean, there's been times, I think I've made the cut twice. There's been times mm-hmm. where I beg not to make the cut because you already played three <laughs> days, right? And a, a fourth day practice yeah. round before, it's too much on you, my body to walk that much. It, it is. And, I want to, you know, you, you, you want to you drop to the ground and curl yourself into a little fetal ball yes. and scream, Mommy, make it stop. <laughs> 
Uh, hey, the last make time, it stop. make please make it stop. The last time I remember Bronson uh, Bragoon was my partner, and, and I was pulling for him. He had to make birdie on the last hole on the Saturday to for him to make the cut. And for us to make the cut, and there was a side of me that was begging him. But, but you know, I wanted him to make the cut, you know, because I was pulling for him. Because yep. you end up playing with your pro, you become good friends, and you, know, you pull for him yep. for the rest of your life. I mean, because you, you've experienced and that, this and, time. And that was the moment when he was putting and you pulled on the Velcro of your, of your <laughs> glove. golf glove. <laughs> hey, I'm going to start well, doing that with my friends at home a little more because they're rude here. And I love that about that. When, when I came back home, see, I, I, I grew up belonging to a country club, the Greenville Golf and country club and it's so southern and so mississippi delta and we don't have tea times and us getting off the front the first tee the pro has to come up eventually because of all of the you know the uh the whatever the the spectacle that we've made uh, of who's playing with who how many shots who's getting what and we we couldn't get off the tee if the pro didn't finally come up grab all the golf balls throw them up in the air and send us off because uh, it's just crazy and I, and that was one of the things when i was in nashville for 20 years i missed i missed that just that uh off the cuff golf you know going out yeah playing yep. 11 in a yep. group and playing wolf you know you can't really do that at a lot of country clubs <laughs> and we do talking to john o'hurley uh-huh. john t- tell me about your first break t- your first tv role that you consider you know the one that sort of started started the mojo you know, I was Mr. Daytime Television back in the... Uh, I was Mr. Soapstar back in the 80s, mm-hmm. so I would go back to that. And uh, I would say probably The Edge of Night, that, uh, a show I did, I think, 1983. Um, but it was but it's funny because what it, 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 I didn't know how to act on television. Now, that sounds strange because you say, well, you're an actor, you know what you're doing. But no, it's a different medium because when you've been used to the theater um, and everything around you is your environment... And all of a sudden, they put you on a soundstage, and there's a camera there. And only that little tiny black hole is what matters. And you have to realize that you have to let the camera do its work, and you can't do anything extra. So it's a, it's a real, there's a real discipline to just kind of undoing rather than learning how to do things. Because the camera will really, it, it just does t- crazy things to your mind. So it took me a while during the early 80s, as I was on daytime television, to learn how to just relax on camera. Television and film, those are editors' mediums. The Broadway stage is an actor's medium because you can't, there are no retakes. So right. everything you do has to be from, you have to take the story from beginning to middle to end. On television, it's an editor's medium. You get it all in the can and you let the editor figure it out. Same with film. Right, that's a totally different trip. We're with John O'Hurley. John, you get to play DJ. Mississippi is the birthplace of American music, and I'm going to keep you in the Delta, so tell me, would you like to hear uh, two great voices, uh, in honor of your voice, Conway Twitty or Charlie Pride? Oh, Charlie Pride. Oh, that was a quick answer. You're with uh, hmm. my man, John O'Hurley. He is in New York City, hanging out on Broadway, spending his nights doing Chicago. You're in the Mississippi Minute. We're going to play a little Charlie Pride. We'll be right back.
In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I'm Steve Azar. We are with the multi-talented John O'Hurley. I got to talk Seinfeld. Uh, I want to understand how that role of Peterman occurred. Um, how, what was it like to be with that cast? Were they old friends, or did they become friends or enemies? I got to give me the rundown because I just love it when you would appear on there. It just worked, you know. Uh, well, Jay Peterman was about—he was a bizarre character. He—he uh, he was kind of a legend in my own mind, um, and it came about in a very uh, kind of silly way. Uh, I had a series on ABC up until the day before I went to Seinfeld, and it was canceled. On a Wednesday morning, they called up and said, don't bother coming to work. We're pulling the plug on your show. Oh, my God. So I went out to dinner that night, and I was crying in my beer with my manager, trying to take the cancellation as personally as I possibly could. (laughs) And um, Larry David's office had called and said, we have this guest star role on Seinfeld tomorrow, uh, and it's perfect for John. He can just chew it up and have a lot of fun with it. We heard the series got canceled. So I thought about it for a second while I was at dinner with him, my manager, and I said, you know, tell him no, tell him thank you, but I'm still licking my wounds over, you know, the cancellation, and I, it, I you know, I don't, I'm not interested in guest starring and, you know, what have you, so I said, thank him anyway. Hmm. You know, it was my ego getting in my way. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, uh, anyway, next, long story short, he never called. He never called Larry David's office back. He calls me in the morning and says, on the following morning, he says, just get up out of bed and go blow it out of your system and have some fun. So I said, all right. So I went over there, and they hadn't even finished writing the script yet for that particular episode because they were the most disorganized show on television. But they did hand me a copy of the J. Peterman catalog, which, if you've ever, if you've never seen it, is the most unusual catalog in the world. If you go to jpeterman.com, you'll see the catalog that we parodied on Seinfeld. And it's these pastel drawings of you know very interesting romantic wear and these long Hemingway-style adventure stories about an Oxford button-down with a size, a price, and an availability. So, I mean, it was just just crazy um, uh, concoction of a, of a clothing catalog. And they said, we just want him to sound the way the catalog is written. <laughs> and so on. I was reading through the catalog, and I was just amazed. And I said, well, he sounds a little bit like a... 40s radio drama combined with a little bit of a bad Charles Kuralt. and oh, so I put the two of them together, and that really was the genesis of the character, and he just became more over the years, uh, five years, four years, however long I was there. Um, he was just, uh, you know, more and more a legend in his mind, kind of a corporate Mr. Magoo. He, exactly. Well, now, wait, that's crazy how you had to find the inspiration. But there's nobody else could have ever played that role. And I feel like that, you know, sometimes roles aren't bigger than the character that's portraying them, like the person. And and in your case, mm-hmm. uh, getting to know you, I just feel like that's just sort of an, a kind of an extension of you that you've been you were able to sort of sort of showcase. Uh, you know, he was this kind of surreal um comic poet um you know and that's what i loved i loved the writing of the show because it was so romantic and and poetic and lyrical and i could you know i could chew the monologues you know what i mean it was just fun and and what it did for the writers on seinfeld is that it allowed them to write in long form they would write long monologues for jay peterman in every show now most of them got cut but they were still very very funny and just you know it was just a joy to kind of learn them and and you know the the rest of the cast at the read through would be in hysterics when the, it was the time for the Peterman monologue. 
So we're talking to John O'Hurley. John, so you mentioned sort of the the writing and sort of things off the uh, off the cuff was was that you know everybody says it was a show about nothing or whatever, but you know I guess is sort of the was the word on the street what you'd read about and but tell me what you mean by that. I mean, was it were they loose? The characters, uh, you know, I mean, it the, was a very tightly scripted show. Comedy is always tightly scripted. I would say drama is more loosely scripted because it's more just kind of off the cuff and conversational and and uh, but comedy is involves timing comedy involves word choices um you know if i if i say one word in a joke it's not as funny if i choose another word in the mm-hmm. joke and of course there is the percussive timing there's the musicality of what you're saying the setup for the joke and the punchline you know there's so many things that go into making something funny uh, and there's a million ways to do it. There's no one way to do it. So it's very tightly scripted. It, it, so it, during the week, you had the opportunity to, if you could think of saying something in a funnier way, you did it. But I tell you, come come showtime, that was a, that was uh, as, as tight as a lock. It was Shakespeare by then. But it was a lot of fun to work on it through the week and uh, also see the writers, you know, playing around with lines during the show and coming, or excuse me, during the uh, rehearsal process and coming in with new versions of it every day. So it was, it was a wonderful, you know, it's a wonderful. But, uh, but I will say that I had to learn comedy in a different way because I was always used to going, you know, in sitcoms, you went from joke to joke to joke and in, the, in between you were setting up, setting up, setting up the joke, setting up the joke. And Seinfeld doesn't read that way. If you listen to the scre- the, uh, the scenes, the lines aren't funny. The scene is funny because it's played so honestly. And these are such neurotic, self-absorbed people. <laughs> so the scenes are funny. Don't try to be funny. And that's a, that's a lesson that took me a while to learn when I was on the show because I, you know, I would read through this, I'd read through the script and I would say to my manager, I said, this is the number one show on television. It's not funny. It doesn't read funny. And it didn't read funny. It performed funny. That's really amazing. With the, the, the art of it and the craft of it. Uh, that's mm-hmm. just amazing. Are right, we talking to John O'Hurley? John, yeah. Family Feud. So we you know grew up on Richard. Richard Dawson used to kiss all the women. Did you when you took over Family Feud? Did you and did you follow Richard Karn or did Richard follow you? Uh, Richard uh, Richard Karn, uh, I followed him. Okay, uh, and I did about five seasons there after that. Yeah, I know you were on for a while, but did, so Richard, don't you remember Richard Dawson used to kiss every every single? I was woman? I was on the show during my soap star days because they had a soap star. They did Family Feud. The soap guys against the soap girls. I was on the show, and I don't remember much about the game. Yeah. What I do remember is watching Richard Dawson. I'm thinking to myself, this is a pretty cool gig. And I didn't realize that 20 years later it was going to be my show. Come on, that's unbelievable. You know? Isn't that funny? That is just, that is funny. And it's funny that I remember the edge of night. I do. So anyway, all right. So uh, so did you have like a certain greeting for everybody? Or did, did you even well, pay attention Well, um, the, the, the women and mostly the older ladies, I would always take their hand and kiss it. Of course you did. I, I, didn't, go for the, I didn't go for the lips. You know, it doesn't work, and there's always that hygiene problem. Yeah, 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 yeah. You never know if somebody's got a fever blister or something. Just, you know. Yeah, never know. You and, never you know, coming from, the an, old ones. coming from a dad, uh, from a, excuse me, coming from a son whose dad dealt with, you know, that region, I, I, I imagine that you mm-hmm. were always pretty good about being safe. Right. Uh, yep. 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 <laughs> okay. So. Yep. 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 But it was fun. I mean, I always had. I had more of an elegant take on the show. It, that that's kind of gone now. It's gotten to be back to a. Well, not back to it. It's kind of. It's lost. It's. Uh, it's not family entertainment anymore. It's kind of like a. We'll call it a penis joke. 
Right. <laughs> you can do that on my show. You can call it whatever joke sure. you want. All right. Well, that's a medical term. That's good. All right. Okay. So tell me, tell me verses. Uh, you're back in the Northeast. You're not that far away from where you grew up in the scheme of things compared to L.A. Um, and just the difference in uh, do you do you still like have to have the Northeast in your blood a little bit when you're in, you know, versus I love, LA? I love I, I, I'm always I'll always be a New England boy. They're just moments. And, you know, it, it uh, during the summer, I just think New England is just one of the great places to be. It's just always it just has such a sense of authenticity and such wonderful history. I mean, the really, you know, the colonial area of our era of our country is just there everywhere you look. And I, and I love to be surrounded by that. Right. Um, and I'm not a big LA boy. I, I just, you know, it just doesn't get me. I'm more of a New York guy and that's why I feel a little bit more uh, at home here in New York. I do live in LA. I live in Beverly Hills and you know, right. the weather is always perfect and, and the people think they're perfect. And, uh, it's a, mm. you know, it's a, it's a place to it's a place to grow up and I or, or to live, but I don't I don't love it. I'm not inspired by it. When I'm in New York and I walk out of the apartment that I'm in, I'm on the streets of New York and I'm in New York, and I'm dodging people the second I walk onto the. That's street. That's what I want to I'm ask you. Your, your mind is constantly stimulated positively and negatively all the time, and there's always something new to see everywhere you look, and you can't stop it. Right. So it's one of the most visually stimulating uh, places in the world. Now, you contrast that with L.A. I walk out of my house, and I'm in my car. And I can effectively buffer myself from any sort of human contact for the entire day by just remaining in that <laughs> well, car. Well, you're going to be in your car the whole day, because <laughs> we know. Yeah, you I mean, will be. And you're only going to go five miles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we complain. Well, I complain about being in uh, Delta traffic when, when, the, when the beans are, are getting ready to cut, be, be cut, like right now, and there's tractors out on the street. Like, come on, move that tractor, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's about it. Hey, so listen. It's so a different sort. Yeah. How do you, okay, and I want to understand how you are, because I've seen you with fans and stuff. You're lovely, all right? Uh, but when you're in New York and you walk out, there's no way you're not noticed because you're one of those guys. When you're, I know in L.A. Mm-hmm. you can be in your car and people go, oh, my God, through the window. But how, mm-hmm. okay, let, let me let me, let me. I go. don't hide. I'm a very... I, I, I try to be accessible, and I don't try to hide. I don't wear sunglasses. I just walk around, and people will stop me. I was just literally yeah. um, on the streets here about uh, 20 minutes ago, and I had two different people stop by, and they wanted to take photographs, and I can I stop for a photograph with them and give them a hug. And, you know, I'm grateful that the people, you know, I'm grateful that people care, you know, uh, because you think about it. It's, you worked an awful long time, and you worked awful hard to get to a level where people would care about what you do, and for for to be to find that an intrusion in your life i you know you can reach over and slap me because the day that that disappears is the day the music dies we're talking to john o'hurley you're in a mississippi minute stand by we'll be right back In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, right here on Super Talk Mississippi. I miss the ride. I'm Steve Azar. We are with the fabulous, incredibly talented John O'Hurley. Okay, having a wife that loves golf, I mean, who loves it more? Because your wife's a great player. Oh, 
Well, I love it. I love it a lot. But for me, it's an avocation, and I'm such a workaholic that that's you know my work is my mistress, and golf is a is a hobby. It's a sport for me. My wife loves golf, and in, in, I mean, she would play every single day, and she's an extraordinarily talented. She was, she played number one for Baylor, and was right. employee number twelve at the golf. And hired uh, Arnold Palmer hired her as employee number twelve at the golf channel. Golf channel so she's right. been her whole life has been around golf, and uh, an exceptional player. She's uh, we joined a country club here in L.A. called Sherwood, and um, she's now the women's club champ as of, <laughs> yeah, of, of, of uh, the second week that after we joined. So that's, <laughs> that's not know, nice. Pretty quick. <laughs> Think about the woman that's been club champion, or if there was, now I she's know, out. Yeah. yeah, it's lovely to be married to a beautiful blonde scratch golfer. <laughs> love it. I love it. Hey, you I know, hate my life. Yeah, yeah, you ought to hate it. Yeah, you're pathetic. You're just <laughs> FYI. We're talking to John O'Hurley. He's had a bad life. John, have you ever looked in the rearview mirror and gone, look at that? I mean, have you ever been in awe of well, your Well, there are. You know, it's funny. I, I, I remember certain things uh, as I look, you know, take the half look over my shoulder, but um, a lot of them have kind of, you know, kind of melded into kind of a little pile. Um, and because they were individual, you know, events and not, and not particularly, um, memorable to me. Uh, but, uh, there are thing, things that stick out that I have enjoyed. And, you know, as I say, I don't, since I don't watch it, I forget about it. And I like to remember the, the high points really as theatrical. And in that way, I remember I remember moments that I had, and those are the things I want to remember. I love that. I rely on my memory to do that rather than the IMDb page. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you got one, so just FYI, you may want to stay away from it, because it's long. Uh, <laughs> hey, so, like, your biggest surprise role, some roles that, you know, obviously the Seinfeld thing, you're coming off of a downer of of a situation, and you want to you want to just relic in the in the, you know, in the bottom of the barrel for a minute and come out. Uh, but and that turned out to be a cool thing. Was there some surprise roles that you took that really sort of took your breath away? Well, I mean, I'll tell you one surprise thing, and it wasn't a role. It was Dancing with the Stars. That was the thing that absolutely blew me away because they came to me. I was the first one that they came to at ABC, and they said, you know, we have this dance show we want you to do for the summer. And I said, no, nah, <laughs> I don't do that. I said, I'll be happy to host it. And they said, no, we want you to do it. And um, and I'm the kind of guy that, you know, goes to the wedding reception with a glass of Chardonnay. And when the music and the dancing starts, I walk back to the wall and sit back and say, knock yourself out, Shriners. <laughs> and uh, it's just not my thing. So all of a sudden, Dancing with the Stars came along, and, and I said yes. And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, I was in a ballroom dancing competition, and that nothing surprised me more than that. I figured I'd be the first one out. I was the oldest in the competition, and I said, yeah. And uh, but I said I'm gonna have fun and do as as well as I can and learn something hopefully and you know I ended up uh, ultimately winning it through right. a controversial dance off that they had to do at the end of the first year so it was uh, it was it was uh, that was probably the biggest surprise of something that I hadn't expected. Okay, so let's talk about how you, just getting in shape for that. You're talking about walking, trying to spend four days on a golf course and competition and 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 uh, and long rounds and all that. But let's talk about what it took. Uh, to get ready and physically prepared for this, because I know it's pretty rigorous for this show, right? They originally came to me and said it will take four hours a week to uh, rehearse for the show. And I said, oh, okay, well, that's easy enough to do. And they said, you can go anywhere and we'll just have your dancer follow you. We'll fly him wherever. Um, 
it was seven days a week, seven hours a day. I would wring three T-shirts out from rehearsal every Come single on. day. I dropped 20-plus pounds, and I was in some of the best shape of my life. Um, and it was a physical and mental exercise, the like of, likes of which I've never gone through before. I describe it as... Uh, I describe Dancing with the Stars as nine parts Marine boot camp and one part cocktail party. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, so when did you did you would you ever perform hurt? Not hurt. No, I had moments when I fell, um, but not hurt. No, I was really I was really lucky. Nothing. Uh, yeah, I mean there are people that have you know have torn hamstrings and what have you, but. You know, for some reason, she was really good. My my uh, my dancing partner, Charlotta Jorgensen, who we you know won with, uh, who's never been back again. She was uh, the number one ballroom dancer in the world at the time, and she just made sure that I had stretched and we were you know working the the strength training and stuff that I needed to do, and and you know we we worked at rehearsal speed and then ramped up later on. You know during the week we ramped up to performance speed and so. You know, it was a nice progressive thing, and I didn't have to. I, I I got out of it without injury. Right, right. Okay. Before I let you go, I love that. I'm glad you got out of it without injury. Uh, let, let me ask you. So, what's coming up? Friday, I hop on an airplane. I fly to Indianapolis, and I start the tour of my one man show, which is called "A Man with Standards." That's it's what my I memoir want to talk show. To you about. Yeah, yeah. It's my memoir show of the crazy stories of my life. That's underscored with the music of Sinatra, Mancini, and it's wow. about growing up in the '50s and the '60s. And I call it A Man with Standards because I use the standards, the songs of the Great American Songbook, to, to be the score of the show, and uh, as well as some of the music that I've written. Well, listen, buddy, yeah. I can't thank you enough for taking a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, with me. And uh, I can't wait to see you again soon and hit the white ball with you. And uh, hugs to Lisa and uh, blessings uh, and congratulations on the 2000th night. That's just amazing, man. What, what, a, what a life thank lived. Thank you, Steve. Okay, brother. Thank you again. You're a great man, and uh, we love you. All right, partner. I'll talk to you later. I'm Steve Azar. In a Mississippi Minute, all 60 of them, where you can take your sweet time. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.